This fall so far, there's been a series of lectures or, or Dharma talks for about ten weeks focusing on the practice of mindfulness or awareness and various aspects of attention, the breath and body, uh, the heart and mind, attention as one moves and extends life into activity, um, and then the results of that attention, the transformations that can come through that, following uh, the traditional Buddhist teachings of the foundations of mindfulness. Last week at the end of that series of ten uh, talks, there was a question that was raised on the relationship of inner practice and inner freedom to the suffering of the world at large around us. Last week I spoke of the Buddhist teachings of the Four Noble Truths, the teaching of suffering and its cause. Personally, the cause of greed and fear and hatred and confusion, depression, those kind of states in ourselves, attachment. And then worldwide, the cause of human suffering, again, coming from greed and prejudice and hatred, the kind of forces that create war and starvation and so forth. The truth of suffering, the truth of its cause, the truth that peace is possible, freedom, awakening, through non-grasping. Then the question comes, how to reconcile the need for response to the sufferings of the world, our responsibility, the kind of service that we might give to the world around us, with the teachings of non-attachment, non-grasping, emptiness that we spoke of. A question for you as we begin to look at that topic. Kind of a reflection for this moment. Are you here in this room? Or is this room in you? It's asked in some other way sometimes. Did you come to Spirit Rock? Or did Spirit Rock come to you? Are you in this room or is this room in you? Can you tell? The reason I ask that is the heart of this question of the relationship of individual and universal responsibility comes down to what is the relationship between what is individual, what is personal, and what is the universe. I recently taught uh, in Sacramento with a teacher and good friend whom I respect very much, Joanna Macy. And Joanna was talking about a trip that she had returned from just this fall. She and Fran were in uh, the former Soviet Union. And they went to visit the area around Chernobyl. And in particular, they went to a city, I can't remember its name, Nova something or other. Um, (laughs) that was the nearest inhabited city to the reactor at Chernobyl, a city of about 50,000 people, the size of San Rafael, perhaps. And this is the nearest place where people are still living to Chernobyl. 
And this city is in an area where there's some beautiful rolling mountains. I don't know, maybe they connect at some distance to the Caucasus or the Urals or something. And beautiful forests. And the people of this area are people who've walked in those forests for generations, for thousands of years, picking mushrooms, cutting wood, going out for picnics, playing, hunting, living in the landscape of that land around them. Now in this Russian city, these 50,000 people have to stay indoors and there's special seals around their windows and their doors and they go out for a little bit and they go into a building in which they work and they have on their walls pictures of the forest and that's all that they have. So Joanna and Fran did some of what is her great work, this despair and empowerment work. <coughs> Two or three days together with a number of the community leaders and people from that community, asking people to talk about what had happened and to look at what had happened in their lives. And in the midst of it, she asked the question, when will you be able to go back to your forest? And the mayor of the town said, not in my great-grandchildren's lifetime, not in their great-grandchildren's lifetime. And they began to weep and grieve, as you can imagine, for really the loss of their life. And out of that, then, several people became very angry, quite angry at Joanna, and said, why are you making us do this? Why are you making us feel all of this? Go into all of this. It's hard enough without your coming here. And she sat silently and waited. And someone answered finally. Someone of the group of the Russians there said, so that we can tell our children that we face the truth. So that we can tell our children that we were willing to bear witness to that which they have to live through as well. And someone else said, so that we can be a sentinel to warn all humankind, never again to let this happen to your children, to your communities, so that we can become stewards of this earth. As awakening develops, it's important, it's important to distinguish between the true characteristics of enlightenment or opening, as we spoke of last time, and the near enemies, and I've given this teaching here before, the near enemy to love is attachment. It kind of feels like love initially, but you know what it does to love after a while. It separates us and then says, I need this person to be a certain way. The near enemy to true compassion is pity. Oh, that poor person, they suffer as if we didn't, as if we didn't all share great sorrows. 
The near enemy to joy is competition or comparison. How do we rate compared to someone else? And the near enemy to equanimity is indifference. It feels like equanimity, but it's really a separation, a not caring. Whereas true equanimity is that openness of heart and mind in the midst of all life. The near enemies are anything that keep us separate, that create an us and a them. Freedom or emptiness, which we spoke of last week, is the same as interdependence. As Lama, the great Tibetan Lama Kalu Rinpoche said, we discover that we are nothing, and being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So I was in India with my wife some years ago, visiting and learning from a wonderful teacher, a woman named Vimla Thakkar, who is a great meditation master and yogi. She initially was a follower of Gandhi and Vinoba Bhave and did lots of village development work, many kinds. And then she met Krishnamurti and was much taken by the freedom that he taught, deeply moved by that and followed him for a long time, and in fact became herself such a deep, uh, and and uh, she she found in herself such a deep and beautiful presence of pe- peace and freedom that Krishna Krishna said you must teach as well one of the few people that he really asked to do that so she went around the world for a while teaching wonderful seminars meditation retreats yet I had heard that now around the time we were coming to visit her, she had given that up and was back doing rural development projects in the villages of India. So Liana and I, my wife and I, went up to be with her in her ashram in Mount Abu, Rajasthan, Gujarat. And after spending a bit of time there, we had a talk with her, and I said, Vimala, I've heard that you're now back doing development work, Gandhian work in the villages. Is that because you found that meditation wasn't enough, that spiritual life is really one-sided, and that it's better to go out and do your meditation as service? And she was very insulted. She said, how can you think that? She said, how can you divide them? I am a lover of life, sir, that same kind of sir that Krishnamurti uses, and as a lover of life, sir, I cannot keep out of any area of life. So if I walk through a village in Rajasthan or Gujarat and people are hungry for not enough food or they're sick because the wells are shallow and they don't have proper sanitation, how can I but stop and work together so that we can dig deeper wells and find pure water for irrigation and for for sanitation? And if I'm in London or Chicago or Los Angeles, or wherever, and I see people who are suffering the great pains of loneliness and alienation and despair and confusion that no amount of money can alleviate, how can I but respond to that suffering? How can I not respond and teach what it means to be free? She said, as a lover of life, I can make no distinction 
I can stay out of no field of life. Do we in our lives divide what is sacred from what is not, what is spiritual from what's not spiritual? We've been taught that. Do we still do it? As Rumi says, sometimes we put the saddlebags on Jesus and let the donkey run loose in the pasture. We get it backwards, pray a little bit and forget where it is that we have to really pay attention. Now there is this kind of paradox, one side of which is the quality that Castaneda calls controlled folly, this empty dance. All paths lead out of the bush and back into the bush. We're not really going anywhere. It's that perspective that knows that it is like a rainbow, an echo, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud. Our life goes like that, a phantom, a dream. And that if we look on the earth from some distance, climb way up in the mountains and look down at the ant people who are going places feeling very important, you know, in their cars or wherever they are, or even out in space and realize, you know, a million years here or there is nothing on the earth. It's nothing. So that's one side. It's, it's just a dance. And on the other is the quality of care or impeccability, because it is only here in this form once, in this way, only one time. It is incredibly precious. And what matters is to recognize that we don't have time and that every act counts even the small ones. If one is to do good, says William Blake, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, and the scoundrel. So this paradox, what to do? The emptiness of it and the preciousness of it. The stillness, the listening, the openness that comes from meditation can inform our action. And in a way, we can make a case for both sides of this paradox. One side of it could be expressed in the saying, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> you know, the first rule of Hippocrates in medicine, which a lot of people may have forgotten at certain times in their medical doings, is do no harm. It's a great rule on this earth, do no harm. Don't just do something, sit there. There have been 28 civilizations that we know that are in recorded history, probably many before that, but the Babylonian and the Assyrian and the, the uh, great, um, the Grecian and the Roman and the great Chinese and, and um, the Mayan, Aztec civilization and so forth, they come and they go in this world. Cycles, countless eons of cycling. If you pay attention, you begin to notice that the people who go out and try and make a difference politically, fight for something or other, the way the civilization cycles seem to be, one regime replaces another. And sometimes they're better and sometimes they're worse. And a lot of times the people who fight for things, when they get in power, what happens? They do the same bad things themselves. And it happens over 
and over and over. How many revolutions do we know this century that haven't turned sour? Not very many. So you look at all the political needs and the kind of political economic transformation, and if you don't pay attention to the greed and the hatred and the prejudice that underlies them, they simply get repeated in another form over and over and over again. So that the only way that freedom, justice, goodness can come to human beings is not by political or economic change, it never works, but by the transformation of the heart. When someone learns how to be unafraid in the face of anger or fear, learns how to work with their own greed and desire, then perhaps something useful can come to the world. And without that, it's just empty. So one of the greatest political acts you can do is to do nothing and face yourself. People are unwilling to do that. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? On the other hand, today on this earth, there are millions of people, even millions of children, who are hungry, who don't have enough food in their bellies. There are millions of homeless people, not just in India or Africa or Central America, but in Marin and San Francisco and Los Angeles and elsewhere, in the rainstorms where it's cold, who are homeless. We are still spending $10 million a minute on weapons and military things worldwide. $10 million a minute. It's obscene in the face of that hunger. There is a ship that left a harbor in France about a month ago, the first one ever, sailing for Japan, carrying a cargo of several metric tons of powdered plutonium for reprocessing in Japan. And there was a whole little world dance about whether this was going to happen. First of all, plutonium can be used if anybody gets any to build nuclear weapons, many, many more of them. But that's not the big problem, believe it or not. This is the first of a whole series of shipments. Powdered plutonium is one of the most poisonous, toxic substances ever imagined. It lasts for a quarter of a million years. If something should happen to that ship, it's only halfway there. It could poison a whole ocean. So if you want to pray during this season, you might pray for the captain of that ship and the crew of that ship that they hold what has been entrusted to them with impeccability and with care because it really matters. The cattle in southern Chile are going blind because of the hole in the ozone layer and lots of the wild animals in the southern Andes. And we're still kind of studying whether we should do something about CFCs, 
or not, it might, it might affect our economy a little bit. You don't even want to send your children out to play in New Zealand or southern South America because of the radiation. So the other side of this is don't just sit there. There isn't time. How do we choose? We've talked about spiritual practice as a path with heart. How do we follow that path with heart? We must sense inside that each of these perspectives has the power to affect the world and that each one of us has the power to affect the world. I believe that the yogis who live in the caves in India and Nepal and Tibet in the Himalayas, and they're still there, and I've met some, who spend a lifetime generating compassion in silence for the world, or the ones in monasteries in Europe, Mount Athos or wherever, I believe they have a great effect on all of us. Just like the story I told when we were, have told before when we were on Mount Abu in India, Liana and I, and she had a vision of her brother coming to her and of him dying, and it was just the day in just the way that he died. How could that be halfway around the world? It is so, and you've all heard those stories many times, it is so because we are not separate. So that when I lived at Ajahn Chah's monastery in the province of Ubon, beautiful old forest, great big tropical forest trees, we were not far from the border of Laos and Cambodia. You'd watch the bombers go overhead from the big air bases in the Vietnam War. And then at night, you'd see the flashes of the bombs in Laos and Cambodia. could really hear it and see it, feel it. So friends came to visit who were involved in the Quaker peace work in Vietnam and Laos, and they said, how can you just be here in this monastery during the war? If you've never been to a place in war, it is horrible. And people go absolutely berserk. Even relatively good people go crazy a lot of the time. There's very little sanity left. What was interesting is some of these friends came to visit And after a while being there, they were renewed and refreshed and ready to go back. And they saw what I had seen, that this monastery, by not getting involved in the politics and the war around, became a sanctuary, an island of peace, a living library, 200 acres, several hundred people. You could go in that monastery and lose your wallet, drop a piece of gold, Someone would pick it up and save it for you. It was a place where people could come and learn what it meant to care for one another and respect each other, to live in the same way. That monastery kept alive something that the whole area desperately needed. Sometimes during the war, as I said during the Iraq-Kuwait war, One of the most radical things you can do is put on Mozart instead of the news. And sometimes what matters most is teaching one child what it means to love the world. 
I have a good friend who I talk about in various Dharma talks often, a Cambodian monk named Mahagosananda, who's sort of become the Gandhi of Cambodia. And I've known him for 25 years. He was a scholar for 40 years. He studied in Cambodia, and then he went to India and lived at Nalanda University in Bodh Gaya. Speaks 15 languages, Pali, Sanskrit, French, Cambodian, Lao, Thai, English, Hindi, Urdu, wonderful. Loves to read the Buddhist texts. And he was a sweet, mild-mannered translator, and not even all that much of a meditator. Um, a scholar, when I knew him, who'd come to live in some forest monasteries and help translate for Western monks. But when all of the sorrows happened in Cambodia, he became one of the few senior monks still alive, and he began to open temples that I've talked about in other nights in the Cambodian refugee camps. And something happened from those 40 years of studying texts and living a simple life and nourishing himself on the Dharma. Something blossomed in him where he walked in the middle of just the most terrible situations and became a beacon of light. He would go through the refugee camps handing out in Cambodian this one-page text of the Buddhist Sutra on loving-kindness. He had a hundred thousand of them printed up and just walked everywhere giving that out and chanting to people. And people's faces would either weep or light up with joy when they saw him. But you wouldn't have known it when you first met him. It was like he was in this cocoon just studying for these years. This year he walked on foot from the Thai border camps all the way to Phnom Penh with a whole group of people in a peace march across Cambodia. One child can become that. Friend John Kabat-Zinn, who's worked in a medical school using Vipassana and insight meditation for healing pain and uh, physical suffering, now has a program that was successful enough at University of Massachusetts and at Harvard. He got a big grant. He has a program working in the inner city. And so he has these taxis that go out that are paid for by this government grant and pick up people who are on welfare and disability and have very, very little money. Taxis pick them up, drive them to the medical school, and they have several hours of meditation instruction, and then they go back home, paid for by the government, the Department of uh, Meditation. (laughs) Or Tetsugan Sensei, this friend in New York who is a Zen master whose community is really service-oriented works a lot with homeless people and had this homeless retreat last, last year where a group of students went and lived five days out in the streets in New York City and sat on park benches doing their meditation uh, twice a day in the park benches in, in the city and then they had to find homeless shelters. Five days you had five dollars, that was the money you were allotted and you had to go and find a place to sleep and food to eat to learn really what it meant to be homeless so that one could serve. A good friend who sits, who is a psychologist for the chief psychologist for Weight Watchers in this country, a million people involved in Weight Watchers, who started Dieters Feed the Hungry. This organization, when you save, when you save yourself from eating all this food, you take the money you would have bought for, for that food and you buy food and you give it to people who are hungry. 
Now they're doing this whole thing across the country. Dieters feed the hungry. From Daniel Berrigan, sometime in your life, hope that you might see one starved man, the look on his face when the bread finally arrives. Hope that you might have baked it or bought it or even kneaded it yourself. For that look on his face, for your meeting his eyes across a piece of bread, you might be willing to lose a lot or suffer a lot or die a little. So many ways. It's said in Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. Which and when? To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the stars. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to reap a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Everything in our life has its cycles. Practice, says Ramdas, spiritual life is a bit like a roller coaster. Each new height is usually followed by a new low. Understanding this makes it a bit easier to ride through the phases. There is, in addition to the up-and-down cycles, an in-and-out cycle. That is, there are stages at which you feel pulled in to inner work, and all you seek is a quiet place to meditate and get on with it. And then there are times when you turn outward and seek to be involved in the marketplace. Both of these parts of the cycle are part of one's practice, for what happens to you in the marketplace helps in your meditation. And what happens in meditation helps you to participate in the marketplace without attachment. Each has its cycles. What cycle are we in? There's this great human cycle of contemplation and restoration, of freeing oneself, and then bringing that gift back into the world. What is your cycle now? Where are you? Really listen. Each has its time in our life. Each of us has our own gift to bring when it is the time, as an artist, to bring beauty, and beauty's what's missing in modern civilization. In politics or economics, or gardening, or teaching, or business, 
or cooking? What is the place of your gift to this world? It can't be an imitation. You can't do it like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or whoever you might admire. It has to be your way. And often the way that we learn comes out of the sorrows that we have experienced. This is from a children's child's book entitled, by a 12-year-old, entitled, My Book for Kids with Cancer. My teacher asked me to write about why we're born, and I found it a really hard paper to write. At first, for a long time, I couldn't think of anything, but now I think I know something to say. I think God made us each born for a different reason. He doesn't want us to do the same things, so that's why he makes us all so different. If God gives you a great voice, maybe he wants you to sing. Or else, if God wants you to be a farmer, he might give you to a family that lives on a farm so you get used to the animals and you're not afraid of them. And maybe if God makes you to grow to be seven feet tall, maybe he wants you to play for the Lakers or the Celtics. (laughs) When my friend Kim died from her cancer, I asked my mom if God was going to make Kim die when she was only six, why did he make her born at all? But my mom said even though she was only six, she changed people's lives. What that means is like her brother or sister could be the scientist that discovers the cure for cancer, and they decided to do that because of Kim. And like me too, I used to wonder why did God pick on me and give me cancer. Maybe it was because he wanted me to be a doctor who take care of kids with cancer. So when they say, Dr. Jason, sometimes I get so scared I'm going to die, or you don't know how weird it is to be the only bald kid in your whole school. So I can say, oh yes I do. When I was a little boy, I had cancer too. And look at all my hair now. Someday your hair will grow back. So we have to listen to what is our gift, our lesson, and let our life be that. As Gandhi said, my life is my message. When we die at the end of our life, the questions that we often ask are simple ones. Did I love well? Did I live fully? To love is to die in a way. That is to give up our self, our separateness. And it has a great power to it. The power that let Joanna Macy go and sit with those people right outside of Chernobyl and be able to face their sorrows. What a gift that was. That comes from our own inner understanding that we can do that. Do you know the thing that most amazed me in this world, said Napoleon? That the sword is always beaten by the spirit. It's always true. True love is not a weakness, but a strength. It's a quality that Gandhi or Martin Luther King called soul force when Martin Luther King talked about, we will meet your... We will meet your... 
how did he say? I can't remember that phrase. Talked about the power of our capacity to suffer. That we will meet the difficulties that we face. And we will wear you down by our courage, by our capacity to suffer, by our soul force. Is the source of strength for Gandhi. You know, there are really two sources of strength in the world. There's the strength that comes from people who aren't afraid to kill, and they run a lot of the territory in the world, you've noticed probably. And the only strength to match it comes from those who are unafraid to die. Like Don Juan says, only as a spiritual warrior can one withstand the path of knowledge. For a warrior, everything that comes is a challenge, while an ordinary person sees it only as a blessing or a curse. A spiritual warrior, they're only challenges, and challenges cannot possibly be good or bad. Challenges are simply challenges. We have a certain measure of sorrow. We don't know why. But how do we face it in ourselves and in the world around us? When we find in ourselves, through our practice, through our contemplative life, whatever way it is that gets you to touch that place, it becomes a gift. During the partition of India, Prime Minister Nehru sent 60,000 troops to West Pakistan to keep the rioting down. And Gandhi went to East Pakistan, to what's now Bangladesh, Calcutta. He was more successful as one person because of the power of that soul force. He said, how fast I will die before I will let myself witness this any further. And his spirit had greater power than those 60,000 troops. To awaken this soul force, it's to see that the sorrows of the world and the sorrows within us are not separate, that they belong together, that we cannot keep out of any part of life. In Germany, they came first for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the gays and I didn't speak up because I wasn't gay. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I didn't belong to a union. And then they came for me, and by that time nobody was left to speak up. I believe that evil really arises from our inability or unwillingness to face our pain. And therefore, we take that pain and put it on others. In families, you see it where there's abuse from generation to generation, abused grandparents and parents and children because people haven't been able yet to face that pain. And I think that's what's going on in the world, the warlords in Somalia. And the pain in Somalia is incredible. And I don't think you could be a warlord like that if you would really let yourself face the pain of the children of your own nation. 
So a great part of our capacity to affect the world comes from the simple act of our facing our own life very deeply. Then we wonder how to respond in the midst of all this. It's like the little prayer that's on the sailboat of a friend of mine. Lord, the sea is so great and my boat is so small. How can we respond? We need to hear the voice of our own particular gift. Sometimes our gift is our action. And sometimes our gift is our being. From the Tao Te Ching. If a country is governed with tolerance, the people are comfortable and honest. If a country is governed with repression, the people are depressed and crafty. When the will for power is in charge, the higher the ideals, the lower the results. Try to make people happy and you lay the groundwork for misery. Try to make people moral and you lay the groundwork for vice. Thus the master is content to serve as an example and not to impose her will. She is pointed but doesn't pierce, straightforward but supple, radiant but easy on the eyes. Nothing is impossible for her. Because she has let go, she can care for the people's welfare as a mother cares for her child. So sometimes it's action and sometimes it's just our presence, our bearing witness, our being. To discover freedom is not different in ourselves and in the world around. Our freedom is our capacity to love, to heal, to accept what is true in front of us. Dorothy Day in in New York City, for all those years she worked. One time a beggar, a woman with cancer of the face, tried to kiss Dorothy Day's hand. Dorothy commented, the only thing I could do was kiss her dirty old face with the gaping hole in it where an eye and a nose had been. It sounds like a heroic deed, but it was not. Whatever we avert our eyes from today can be born tomorrow when we have learned a little more about love. It's step by step. So what we learn when we sit here is the capacity to face ourselves and our own pain and the pain of the world, to measure our pain and to forgive our pain. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, says Longfellow, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So to face the truth that we all share in the beauty and the sorrows of the world. To face the truth of birth and death. It's inevitable, you can't stop it, you're gonna die. Everyone you know is gonna die. Everyone you love and everyone you hate and all the people you don't know. When you go to the burning ghats in Benares, temple where the fires have been going along the Ganges River for a thousand or two or three thousand years, think it would be this really creepy place where all the bodies are burnt. You come up row up 
along the river to this great temple. And it's not that way at all. It's very peaceful and it's very sane. And after people die, their bodies are brought down and they chant, Ram Nam Satya He, Ram Nam Satya He. And they carry the bodies and dunk them in the river and place them on the fires that have been burning for a thousand years. And they honor that there's birth and that there's death and that this is life. Every day, 200,000 people die. 230,000 people are born. Every day. To face the truth That's what the world asks of us in spiritual life. Who's the person who started Earth first? Anyone remember? Is it David? Hmm? Uh Uh-huh. I was reading something from him. Well, he's talking about go out and save the environment from the destruction of civilization and all the kinds of things we need to do, a revolutionary way. And then he said, but don't forget the biggest revolution of all is to go walk in the wilderness among silent trees, spend months in mountains and windy peaks, go fishing and hiking and even hunting if you want, and camp up there. And no matter what they do, at least you'll have that. That's your revolutionary act. Go out and don't just fight civilization, but go out and really connect with the truth of your life and the world. So we each have our way to raise one child or to make a sanctuary for peace or this monk friend of mine who goes into death row in various prisons and sits with people who are facing their dying or a pilot friend of mine who flying relief flights in Africa, in Somalia or the people in this community who talk about teaching reading to those who can't read in the canal district or working in San Quentin in a volunteer program or in a daycare program to help with literacy. We have a responsibility to bear witness like the people of Chernobyl and to find our own heart's unique response. And when we discover that, when we discover that capacity in ourselves then where we go and what we do doesn't matter so much because it's our being that brings the blessing. Zen Master Sasaki Roshi was asked, why did he come to America to teach? He said, I let others do the teaching. I came to have a good time. I want Americans to learn how to really laugh. At the end of the ox herding pictures, the Zen teachings, you go in the find the ox in the forest and tame the ox and ride the ox until you and the ox disappear. The last of these pictures is called Bliss Bestowing Hands. I enter the marketplace with my wine bottle and my staff and all whom I look upon become enlightened. There's this tremendous joy that comes from finding that in oneself. We all long for some kind of integrity. How can we respond to the sorrows of the world? How can we bring our gift? We need first to find that freedom in our own hearts and then to listen to what season it is where we can bring our gift in our way. 
It's small. As Mother Teresa says, we cannot do great things in this world. We can only do small things with great love. But no action goes unaccounted. The way you drive this Christmas season and all that madness down there will affect the people in the Bay Area. And the other drivers need it. You'll notice. (laughs) The kind of gifts that you buy and give, or don't, the kind of care you take, the simplicity with which you live. No action goes unaccounted. The lemon tree in my garden is a bigger influence on my writing than all the poets put together. This is from Miguel Hernandez, great Latin poet. The lemon tree in my garden is a bigger influence on my writing than all the poets together. Let me read you a story to end, or just about to end. Tell me the weight of a snowflake, a winter story. A coal sparrow asked a wild dove. Nothing more than nothing was the answer. In that case, I must tell you a marvelous story, the coal sparrow said. I sat on a branch of a fir close to its trunk when it began to snow. Not heavily, not in a giant blizzard, no, just like in a dream without any violence. Since I didn't have anything better to do, I counted the snowflakes settling on the twigs and needles of my branch. Their number was exactly 3,741,952. When the next snowflake dropped on the branch, nothing more than nothing, as you say, the branch broke off. (laughs) Having said that, the coal sparrow flew away. Now the dove since Noah's time and authority on the matter, thought about the story for a while and finally said to herself, perhaps there is only one person's voice lacking for peace to come about in this world. (laughs) Sit up if you would. If there is righteousness in the heart, there will be beauty in the character. If there is beauty in the character, there will be harmony in the home. If there is harmony in the home, there will be order in the nation. If there is order in the nation, there will be peace in the world. Let's just sit for a minute.
Anyone have anything that you have discovered or learned about the relationship between inner and outer, between the freedom and the compassion in oneself and the needs of the world around? Can I say something about Maha Goshananda? Yes. Um, he came up to the Zen Center in Santa Rosa one time and um, uh, I didn't know that he was there yet and the birds in the trees started to sing like I've never heard before. <laughs> and we went in the house and there he was and, and it was almost hard to look at him because of that, the, the kind of like, you couldn't see the light really but you could feel it in your eyes and it was really intense. I've never met anybody like him before. Mm. When Gosananda came to the Zen Center in Sonoma, she didn't know he'd come yet. All the birds in the trees went wild singing. It sounds like him, yeah. He mostly, mo- the main thing he does is giggle and laugh. That's his main kind of sound that he makes in the world. It's true. Anyone else? Please. He found it was equal? Ah, I see. So if I ask also, is the room in you, or are you in the room? Is that also equal? Yes, room is in me. Ah, thank you. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> you get to kind of say the last comment up here, that's how it works. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. So it comes as a grace. There are times when that open generosity just comes as it comes, and you can't quite make it. Beautiful. And there are times when it's not there, and when your heart is like stone, and you don't have something to give, and what you need to do is go into some little cave somewhere and just kind of lick your wounds, you know, and feel your sorrow, and honor it somehow, and... And in some way, the honoring of it transforms it. And you can again breathe out and go back into the world. And who's to say which of those, that heart of stone and the willingness to honor it, or the moment of divine generosity, is the greatest? Yes? Jack, I would like to pass along my most sincere thanks for addressing this tonight. Thank you. Thank you. I said I'd do it next week, but I did it this week instead. Yes. Just, um, I guess that I always sort of have walked around feeling that other people needed things from me. And one time I remember walking on the beach and I just, someone came up to me and I was coming up across some sharp stones and just asked if I needed their shoes to get across the stones. And it just made me feel what it feels like to receive hmm. in a way that you don't expect to. Lovely. It's wonderful. So it is really a gift to receive 
as well as to offer. Let's, so let's sit just for a moment. Just some stillness in the holiday season. Ah. Each day I long so much to see the true teacher. And each time at dusk, when I open the cabin door and empty the teapot, I think I know where he is, west of us in the forest. Or perhaps I am the one who is out in the night, the forest sand wet under my feet, moonlight shining on the sides of birch trees, the sea gleaming far off. And he or she is the one who sits at home, in my chair calmly. He or she reads and prays all night. He or she loves to feel their own body around them. They don't leave their house. Who is the true teacher? Let's just chant the sound, ah, letting go, opening, connecting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.